We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Good morning. How are you? Good. good. It is good to see you back at the theater. It, um, man, it, it, is, it is really beautiful to see you all here and to be back in this place and, uh, and to hear the, the band. I walked down the aisle as the band was practicing to come in and um, do my sound check, and it was just kind of filled with some nostalgia and also just thankfulness uh, that we are back in this place. So thank you guys for gathering back with us. Thank you for your flexibility throughout the summer. A friend of mine um, likens leading a church through COVID as driving a car up a windy mountain road in dense fog. All right, the fog is so thick you can't see ahead of you. You don't know when to turn right, when to turn left, when to accelerate or when to brake. But the fog's also so thick you can't even see behind you. You don't know what kind of car you're driving or how many people are in it either. And, uh, and that's kind of what it's like to, to lead a church through this. We don't even really know what we have in a sense and where we're going. Um, we're just trying not to run off the mountain um, in a sense of faithfulness. And you all have helped us remain faithful um, through your unity and your flexibility and your cooperation. And so thank you guys so much for that. If you're a guest, it's great to have you with us. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's a joy to get to, uh, to gather with you today. We do have a connect table today. It's outside, and so feel free to stop by there. Uh, we will um, be as contactless as you would like to be there, and, uh, but we'd love to just hear how you came to join us today uh, and to help answer any questions that you have. And then for all of us here today, um, I know that one of Emmaus' favorite things is lingering, and so we love you lingering, but it's a beautiful day, and we'd love 
for you to linger outside today, all right? And so we do need you to clear out of this rather quickly when we're done uh, because we will be using a um, fogger to come in and sanitize the whole room before the next group comes in. And so we ask you to leave this room rather um, quickly when we're done. And then uh, there's too many of you to just congregate in the lobby. So as many of you as can move outside in the sunshine, it's kind of a long blocked off area that they've made for us out there. It's kind of an extended lobby which is wonderful, so feel free to move out that direction and hang out. Hey, this afternoon is members meeting, so if you're a covenant member family, we're inviting one representative from your family to come join us at 3 o'clock. We're going back to faith at Prather for that. This is our last time we'll be at that facility, uh, and, uh, and so we'll be gathering there at 3 o'clock. We're going to have baptisms. Uh, we're going to welcome in 34 new covenant members and commission them as covenant members of our church. We're going to uh, also be um, installing two new elders. Over the last week, uh, the covenant members of Emmaus voted unanimously, 100% on both Joseph Lanier and Matthew Barrett as elders of our church, which is just unheard of for that to happen. Uh, and so praise God for, for that unity and moving forward with that. And then we'll just be giving some um, vision updates and some detail updates briefly. And then Pastor Sam's just going to care for you. Um, he's going to spend a little bit of time just kind of caring for our souls in the midst of this kind of crazy season of COVID, elections, um, race, all these different sorts of things, uh, social issues, and, uh, and that whole process will be about an hour and a half. So one representative from each family come join us. We'd love to have you there. And then let me just do this before we jump into this text. I know that this week is going to be an uh, interesting week for all of us here in the United States. Right, obviously the elections are on Tuesday and, and they're sure to be an issue that stirs up disagreement and disappointment and frustration. They're sure to stir up emotions. Uh, no matter what the outcome is on Tuesday or whenever we do get an outcome from Tuesday, um, there, it's sure that there's going to be those of us who are gathered in this room right now who disagree about that outcome. Right? Some of us will be frustrated with it, some of us will be fearful with it, some of us will be hopeful with it, no matter what the outcome is. And so allow me simply to give us three reminders as a church, right? three brief reminders as a church. First, no matter the result, our hope is not in a president, politics, or policies. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? and that is what unifies us. Secondly, no matter what divides us politically or socially, we're united in this gospel. Remember church, that your fellow brothers and sisters in this church are not your enemy, right? They are the family of God that Christ has adopted you into, and the bond with your family in Christ is stronger than your political or your social lines, all right? Remain unified. And thirdly, we are to love one another, all right? We're to love one another. We're to be kind and patient and generous and gracious. We're to be slow to speak and quick to listen with others, and so church, be very careful this week not to sow discord among each other or to sow disbelief among unbelievers with the way that you respond to what happens on Tuesday. All right, that's what I'll say about that. Let me pray and we'll jump in to this beautiful text. Jesus, I thank you for the joy of gathering here today. I thank you for the joy of opening up this um, beautiful passage that you gave to Paul to write down for the church at Rome so that today this church in North Kansas City may read it and learn from it. Spirit, would you preach a better sermon than I have prepared? Would you move upon our hearts and would you shape us and encourage us and save us and convict us from this text? And would you free us with it? We need to hear from you today. And then, Father, we pray that you'd be with our nation 
this week. Father, would you be with the church in our nation this week? May the church, Father, may the church just miraculously be a, a light of hope in the midst of this, rather than a voice of anger and outrage. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, we just read through it. In the last several weeks, we have seen that every person is guilty before God for their sin. Right? Every single person without partiality, um, no one is free of guilt before God. There's not a person in the entirety of history that is free from guilt before God for their sin. That includes you and me, young and old in this room, wealthy and poor in this room, male or female, white or black or Hispanic. None of us in this room are without guilt before God for our sin. But likewise, there's none of us in this room we have seen that is without the hope of the gospel. That literally any of us who believe in Jesus, who place our faith in Jesus, shall be saved. Well, it doesn't matter if you're old or young, white or black or Hispanic or male or female or rich or poor, American or Iranian. We all can be saved by placing our faith in Jesus. And we've seen within this last few weeks that no one is saved by works. Right? No one is saved by effort. None of us are saved um, by making ourselves better, by learning from our mistakes, by working harder, by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're all saved by faith alone in Christ, alone. Both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, Paul says. Now, at this point in this text, here's, here's the danger that we have, church. The danger that we have is that this, if you're a follower of Jesus, should be understood by us. Right? It should be familiar. It shouldn't be that if we're a follower of Jesus, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, we show up and hear this passage and we're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Right? This is the very nature of what it means to place your faith in Jesus, to be saved by faith, not by works. And so the danger for us is it can become so common that it becomes stale. I heard a pastor friend share an illustration a few weeks ago, and it was an illustration that actually um, was a shared experience that him and I had together, and so I don't feel bad about stealing his illustration since I was part of his illustration. Him and I were gathered, we were part of this leaders collective, and we were gathered in North Carolina a few weeks ago, um, and, and there the man who's leading us was hosting us in his house, and, and he he's, uh, prides himself on, on hospitality, and he's a bit of a foodie, and so he actually like, really loves pairing flavors and foods together. There's one guy in our group who just doesn't believe there's such thing as pairing. It, doesn't, like, it just doesn't even exist, and we're like, what is wrong with your mouth? You're like, constantly having COVID or something. I'm not sure. So... At this, we're sitting on his beautiful deck with the fireplace going out on the deck, and, and he's brought us our drinks, Paired's drinks and, and food, and, and he brings us the first appetizer. And the first appetizer is this little tray of candied pecans paired with two items that he calls devils on horseback. Right, devils on horseback. And, and here's what devils on horseback, I have no idea why that's what he calls it, um, but, but devils on horseback is this. It almost ruins the illustration. But, but devils on horseback is this. It's a pitted date stuffed with blue cheese wrapped in bacon and baked until the bacon is cooked. And I see some of your faces. Some of you have faces of surprise. I never thought of that. 
some of you have faces of, that is disgusting, I'm about to vomit in my mask, right? <laughs> Keep your mask up, we'd appreciate that, all right? That's what those are for, right? Some of you can't believe that because you're just like, you don't like dates. And for you, I'm just like, I don't know what's wrong with you. Right? Dates are God's candy, right? Some of you don't like that because you don't like blue cheese. And I'm like, okay, I get that, right? I, I can throw you that bone. Some of you don't think that sounds good because you don't like bacon, and I'll question every decision you ever make for the rest of your life. <laughs> but I'm promising you, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to testify on behalf of a devil on horseback <laughs> that it is the most explosive set of flavors in your mouth you could ever put in there. It is glorious, glorious. It's amazing what it does. Guys, this passage is a lot like a devil on horseback for us. Right? This truth is a lot like a devil on horseback for us. Right? There's some of us who find this idea of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone to, to be um, difficult to swallow, even off-putting. Right? It can be off-putting for us because many of us love the idea of earning our favor from God. Even those of us who have put our faith in Christ there's still something deep-seated within us that has some sort of gag reflex at the idea of us not being able to earn God's favor. And you see it come out with things like when you attempt to, uh, when you believe that the more good you do, the more God is pleased and gives you favor. And when the, the more you sin, the more God is like you know, regretting that he saved you. Or you begin to see this come out in your beliefs in those moments. But I'm here to tell you that the flavor of a gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is an explosion of taste for your soul. Right? It should explode within you to such a degree that you cannot stop talking about it. You have to convince a theater full of people to eat blue cheese stuffed dates wrapped in bacon. You have to convince people that this gospel is good to the soul. Or it's an explosion of flavor. It is rest, and it is peace, and it is warmth, and it is hope, and it is confidence and assurance. It is kindness, and it is acceptance. It is belonging, and it is so good. Some of you have tasted it. Some of you have tasted it, and you're still tasting it today. Right, you've put aside your efforts and those stale, generic, artificial flavors that you once thought were delicious, your works. You've put those aside and you've tasted something better. You've picked up salvation that has been given to you by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And when you bit into it, your soul exploded and danced and song and joyfulness and restful bliss. And to this day, you still can taste that beautiful gospel. When we sing of it, you can taste it. Your soul wants to leap in joy of it and go, hey, could I, have, could I have another round of that? And some of you have tasted it, but as life has drifted, as life has gone on, you've begun to snack on workspace salvation again. You've begun to put pieces of workspace salvation back into your mouth, and you're beginning to lose the, remember, the remembrance of the taste of the beautiful gospel. Instead, you're settling for stale bread and crackers. You've begun to bite into the lie that you must do more in order to please God more. You must sin less to justify God's forgiveness of you. You must do X, Y, Z to be in right standing with God. 
and the memory of that grace-filled treat which comes from faith alone in Christ alone has begun to fade. I pray as we journey through Romans, it will remind you of the flavor of the gospel. And for some of us, we've never tasted salvation. We've never had that taste fill our soul, that taste of restfulness and the grace of God that only comes through faith in Jesus. You've lived your entire life on stale bread. Oh, may we come and may we taste true food, rich food, delicious food of the gospel. As Pastor Sam said last week, everyone needs Jesus. And anyone can have Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus and anyone can have Jesus. All you must do is believe. In chapter 4, Paul's going to answer questions that he anticipates being brought up because of what he's explained for us in chapters 1 through 3. Paul anticipates that there will be a couple questions, and so he wants to respond to those ahead of time. At the end of chapter 3, he said that both, circum, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised can get in on, the salvation, on this salvation if they have faith. He goes, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. We all can get in on salvation because salvation is by faith. And then he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, he says. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And he anticipates two objections. And he replies to those objections here. First, he anticipates that they're going to say, yeah, well, what about Abraham? What, what, what about Abraham? As one commentator said, if you can't explain Abraham, you can't explain anything. Right? If you can't explain to us how Abraham was saved, Paul, then you have no argument against us. So Paul's going to address this. And then he's going to respond again to the idea that salvation can only come to those who are circumcised. That it can only come to those whose lives are filled with works, who have done something for their salvation. And so we see in verses 1 through 8, Paul's first response to the question, what about Abraham? Their question in verses 1 through 8 is this, what about Abraham? If he was justified according to works, then he has something to boast about. And so Paul responds to this. Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, he says. So the argument is, well, what about Abraham? And Paul goes, yeah, that's a great question. What about Abraham? If Abraham was justified by works, then he should boast. Go for it, Abraham. You have every right to stand before us and boast about your goodness, right? You can stand up in front of others and you can put up your billboard and you can change your um, social media profile and you can say, me, the person who did enough, right? I was good enough finally to earn God's favor. But he says, Abraham wasn't and you aren't. You have no reason to boast before God. You weren't, you aren't, you never will be, and you never could be saved by your works. So you have no boast. Neither was Abraham. Therefore, neither did Abraham boast of this. Paul says in verse 3, he brings them back to Scripture. Look at it. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So verse 3, Paul brings their attention back to Scripture, and he brings it back, quoting Genesis 15. And as he does this, Paul's drawing out the significant point that Abraham's righteousness was not earned by his works, but it was given to him because he believed. The word here is counted, right? Or, or you could have credited. It was counted to him because he believed. Paul explains this in verse 4 when he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul uses the illustration of someone who works and the wages he gets. I'm always hesitant to use the illustration of myself as a pastor because a lot of you don't believe that Sam and I work anytime other than Sundays. So let's use a different job. In 2005, I did concrete work. Is that, is that real work for you guys? 2005, I did concrete work, putting in driveways and patios and, and that sort of thing. And I would go to work. I'd work long, hot, hard hours. I was engaged to Tish, so it was great because I was getting, you know, in, in shape doing concrete work. It was wonderful. And then every other week, the pastor, or, or the pastor, that's me. Every other week, the, the boss would send me a check, right? Not direct deposit, literally hand me the check. And I would take it and I'd put it in the bank. And his check that he gave me every other week, it was not a gift. It was not generosity. He wasn't being kind to me. He was actually paying me for something I had earned. In fact, he was paying off a debt to me. He had a job that needed done. I did the job that he needed done. He was indebted to me. And so by paying me, he paid, me, paid off his debt to me, paid me what he owed me. It was not a gift. And Paul's bringing out this illustration to go, listen, like if you could earn your salvation, if you could earn it by works, it's not a gift of grace from God. In fact, it's God being indebted to you and God is indebted to no one. Rather, he says, as you look at verse five, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in verse 5, it's not the one who does the work and earns the grace, but the one who believes that God justifies the ungodly. Right? Do you see that? Not work, but believes. And believes what? That God justifies. That he justifies who? The godly? Because that's what the Jews believed. That God would justify the godly. That he would justify the holy. If, I, if I'm holy, if I do enough, if I'm circumcised, if I know the law, if I keep the law... I'll be justified. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, if you believe God justifies the godly. Paul says, if you believe that God justifies the ungodly. If you believe that God justifies the ungodly, those who aren't holy, those who can't obey, those who don't have it all together, those who are broken, who are sinful, who have nothing to offer. As we sang about, sung about a moment ago, those who it seems like every, every help is simply um, wasted upon them. 
Those who can't string together multiple days of obedience. Those who doubt. Those who are riddled by fear. Those who are filled with lust. Those who are, well, us. God justifies the ungodly, you and me. He justified them and counts their faith as righteousness, and he justifies us and counts our faith in Jesus as our righteousness. We are the ungodly who have been counted as righteous. And Paul then uses David as an example of this in verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. And notice what Paul points out before he actually quotes David. He says what David is doing is David is speaking of the blessing towards the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. And so apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Apart from works, blessed are those whose sins are covered. Apart from works, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Works have nothing to do with this blessedness towards this person. It is by faith that God justifies the ungodly. For us, we look at it as as, is by faith that we look to Jesus as the one by whom he justifies the ungodly. One commentator explained what Paul is saying is this. David was not a man who had his good works laid to his account, but a man who does not have his bad works laid to his account. Not a man who has his good works laid to his account, but a man who does not have his bad works laid to his account. And Christian, this is not just David's story, it's our story. It's your story. You are not a child of God's because he has laid your good works on the table of payment and credited them to your account. Quite the contrary, you're a child of God's because he has looked at a table full to overflowing of your bad works and he's taken his hand and he's flung them off the table not to look at them. And then because they have to be dealt with, he's taken his son, Jesus Christ, and he's laid him on the table and spilt his blood in your stead, accepting all of his good works on behalf of you and punishing him for all of your bad works. This is how we are saved. This is the flavor of the gospel that we taste, that God has flung every bad work you've done to the floor and placed his son on the table and bled him out on your behalf. Those of us who yelled at our wife this week, he says, come in faith. To those of us who lost our temper with our child this week, he says, come in faith. To those who doubted this week, come in faith. To those of us in this room who have lied this week, he says, come in faith. To those who have stolen this week, come in faith. To those who have looked at porn this week, come in faith. To those who have tried to be good enough this week, come in faith. To those full of pride in your discipline, come in faith. To those who are ungodly, come in faith. And your faith will be counted as righteousness. How kind is that? How merciful? How good? How flavorful? Response number two, 
verses 9 through 12. Paul then answers the question he expects them to bring next. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But what about circumcision? Is circumcision not needed for salvation? And Paul will address this. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul says, well, well let's consider Abraham's righteousness and his circumcision. And he says, was Abraham considered righteous by faith before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? And his answer is, well, after. And you see this in the Genesis account. In Genesis 15, Abraham believes and it is counted to him as righteous. In Genesis 17, Abraham was circumcised. It was a difference of 14 years. 14 years passed between his faith which was counted as righteousness and his circumcision. So, so what's the point that Paul's making? Well, the point is it was not circumcision or it was not works, which was counted as righteousness, but his faith that was counted in righteousness. What then is the point of the circumcision? Okay, so, so if that's true, then, then why be circumcised? Why go through that if he was actually justified by, by faith, if he was considered righteous by faith 14 years before? And Paul will explain that it was a sign testifying that Abraham had the seal of righteousness through his faith. So he was considered righteous by faith, and then he received circumcision as a sign that he had been considered righteous by faith. Perhaps some of you who have been in the church a while or have a little bell going off in your head, and like, that sounds a lot like baptism, and in a way it is a lot like baptism. Let me take a side for a moment and just explain briefly the difference and the, and, the, and the similarity. I'll quote Pastor Sam for this. I asked him about this this week. And he simply said, circumcision is a sign and seal of the old covenant. Make, marking off that this person belongs to this covenant community and officially swearing them in. Right? Circumcision was a seal, a sign and a seal of the old covenant. Marking off that person belonging to the covenant community and officially swearing them in. Likewise, baptism is a sign and seal of the new covenant. Or a sign and seal of the new covenant. In the same way, it's a sign that it symbolizes identification with Christ. And it is a seal that is, a, it is an official church declaration. Right? It is the church going, yep, they're in. Right, they're, they're in. And so it's similar to this. But to Paul's point, his point here is simply that circumcision is not what saved Abraham. It is not what declared him as righteous. His point is that circumcision isn't what made Abraham righteous. Rather, it was a sign that he had been made righteous. Just as circumcision did not make New Testament Christians that he was writing to in Rome righteous. 
Rather, it was a sign for some. Their faith in Jesus had made them righteous. And then he says in verse 11 and 12 that Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe but are not circumcised and the father of all who are circumcised and walk in faith. Right, that Abraham is the father of all who believe and are not circumcised. And he's also the father of all who are circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but have actually walked in faith as well. So he goes, listen, here's the unifier for Abraham with us. It's not an issue of circumcision or not circumcision. It's an issue of faith. If you have faith that God justifies the ungodly, then you are in and you're part of the family. For us, we now see that this faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Abraham is the father of all who believe, and anyone who believes in Jesus is counted as righteous. Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. This applies to us today as well. Now, the context I want you to remember that Paul's writing to in Rome is a church that has been growingly disunified over racial and ethnic issues, especially between Jews and Gentiles on the issue of circumcision. And Paul is seeking to unify this church with the gospel. This is what unifies us, the gospel. And he's seeking to do so, so that one, that church may be unified around the gospel, but two, so that church may send him with the gospel on beyond that church to Spain. He wants to take the gospel to the people who have never heard the gospel before. He wants the church unified, and he wants the gospel to go forth to those who have not heard. So amazed, this is what we do here every week. This is why we preach the gospel the way that we do every week. We preach the gospel every week from the text, doing our very best to be faithful to the gospel message from each and every passage that we look at in this. We preach the gospel in this room because we believe that there are people who gather with us in this room every single week who have not truly believed in Jesus. There are people who gather with us every week who still put their hope and their faith in their works. They've not trusted Jesus. They've not relied on faith alone for their salvation. And so we preach the gospel every week because we believe everyone needs Jesus. And we truly believe anyone can have Jesus. They simply must believe. And we preach the gospel in this room every week because we believe that the gospel should be the glue that unites us as a church. When pandemics and racial riots and social issues and political elections and personal preferences and sinful hurts and personal wounds seek to pull at the seams of our church and unravel the thread that holds us together, we come back again and again to the gospel weekly and we say, no, that will not divide this church. That will not isolate me from my brothers or sisters. We are one in Christ through faith. And we preach the gospel in this room every week because we truly believe that the gospel is for all peoples, white, black, American, Iranian, Asian, rich, poor, young, old, educated, illiterate, 
We want to see the gospel go to all peoples. So we want to see you as a church embrace the gospel for yourself personally because we believe it is the flavor to your soul that will ignite a worship and a love and a righteousness before the Lord. We want to see you embrace the gospel because we believe it is what will unify us together as a people. And we want to see you embrace the gospel because we truly believe all peoples across all of the globe can believe and find righteousness. And so we want the gospel to go forth from a group of people who have have tasted and know the goodness of the gospel. It's why we preach the gospel every week here. So in closing, unbeliever, I long for you to taste the gospel. I long for you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He is an explosion of flavor for your soul. And you don't have to do anything to earn it. You just have to believe. Would you believe in Jesus today? Believe he's the son of God. Believe he came to redeem the ungodly. Believe that you are the ungodly. Believe that he paid for your sins through his death, burial, and resurrection. Believe that he saves today and find life, unbeliever. I wish that I could shove that blue cheese stuffed bacon wrapped date into your mouth and make you taste it. But I can't. You have to do that on your own. And I wish that I could shove Christ into your soul. But I can't. You have to believe. Would you believe? To the believer, three brief questions for you. Number one, do you still taste the gospel? Do you still taste its goodness? Do you still taste how good salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone sits on the tongue? Do you still remember what it's like to your soul, or has it begun to fade? Perhaps, Christian, you simply need to spend some time remembering the taste of the gospel. What you listen to and what you read and how you pray and the confessions that you give and the conversations that you interact with this week, maybe you just need to take some time to actually just have Simple, pure, grace-filled gospel conversations. Just remember how good he is. Question number two. How is this delicious gospel affecting the way that you interact with other believers? Right, if you believe that the gospel is for all who believe, then how is that being fleshed out in your life this week? Right, if it's truly what unites us across all of our differences then how are you interacting with one another this week? How will you interact with those who have different political and social stances than you this week? How will you interact with those who are different ethnically than you this week? How are you pursuing unity with your fellow covenant members this week? How is this reality affecting your social media posts and your family dynamics this week? How does it affect your response to the one who has offended you? It's one thing to believe that the gospel is for all who believe, and it's another thing for us to allow that to shape a humble, gentle, and loving approach for other believers. May the gospel not just taste good to us personally, but may it make our relationships taste good to others as we respond with gospel flavor to other people. And question number three, how is the beautiful truth of the gospel affecting the way that you engage unbelievers this week? Question one, have you tasted it? Do you still taste it? 
Question two, how is it affecting the way you respond to believers this week? And question three, how is it affecting the way that you respond to unbelievers? If Jesus is for, if every, excuse me, if everyone needs Jesus and anyone can have Jesus, then what are you doing to share Jesus? Again, this is not an issue of justification. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but it's an overflow of justification. Once you've tasted the devil on horseback, you feel compelled to convince others to try the devil on horseback. Right? It's the same with the gospel. If you're saved by faith in Jesus, then anyone can be saved by faith in Jesus. And all you need to be saved by faith in Jesus is to hear about Jesus and believe. Then who are we telling about Jesus? Right, neighbor, coworker, your children. These are accessible to us this week. We can all engage in this. But then remember, Paul's also wanting them to send him on to those who have never heard the gospel. And not all of us will be ones who go to those who have never heard the gospel, to other cities and nations and peoples to share the gospel. But the Lord has been incredibly gracious to us here at Emmaus to give us a plethora of people who are going. Darian just returned from North Africa. Mariella is in South Asia. The Nidigs head to Southeast Asia in late winter. The Swadleys are in the process of being sent overseas in 2021. The Daroshis annually take the gospel to East Africa to train pastors and leaders there. We have teams that go to northern Italy to train pastors, encourage the church, and minister to those in trafficking. We've sent pastors to Seattle and Rhode Island and South St. Louis and St. Clair, Missouri and Waco, Texas. We have sent uh, church planning residents to New Mexico and to downtown Kansas City. And we even have a group of families in our church who are now prayerfully considering what it looks like to plant a church in another part of Kansas City. God has blessed us with people to go. Perhaps you're one of them. Perhaps the gospel ignites within you a desire to go, leave where you're at, be a part of taking the gospel to another people. But even if that's not you, we all have a place in the giving and the praying for this. Covenant members today at members meeting, we will share with you briefly um, what it could look like for us as a church to engage global mission with prayers, with care, with sending, and with giving a new initiative by Emmaus called Global Outreach for us to take the gospel to the nations. We're really excited about it. I hope you taste the gospel. I hope it ignites your soul with the flavor of Jesus Christ. I hope it affects the way that you treat each other this week. And I pray that it affects the way that you engage with unbelievers this week as well. There's nothing, there is no flavor that is sweeter, more delicate, more delicious than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Taste it and believe. Jesus, I thank you for your grace to us to bring us to this text today. Would you let it set upon our hearts? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.